We're up to the third of these titles in Isaiah 9 verse 6, Everlasting Father. Now this title has confused some people, especially when we understand the passage to be fulfilled in Jesus. How could Jesus be called Everlasting Father when he is the Son? We find with saying that Jesus is wonderful counsellor, he's the mighty God and next week we'll see he is the Prince of Peace. We may struggle to see how this title, Everlasting Father, fits in with the others. Nowhere else in scripture is the title Father applied to Jesus. Now if we say this is purely symbolic language or figurative language, we run into trouble in the other direction because we have to be consistent with how we read the passage. If we're going to read one of them as figurative, we have to read all of them as figurative. But we haven't been saying that Jesus isn't really a wonderful counsellor, he's just like a counsellor. We haven't been saying he's not mighty God, he's just like a mighty God. So saying it's figurative doesn't solve our dilemma. Some have tried to solve the dilemma by saying, well, Jesus is the Father. This is called modalism. It's a belief that denies the Trinity, that says God is not three persons but one person and that he's manifested himself in three different ways, sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Holy Spirit. And Isaiah 9 verse 6 is a verse that modalists point to to back up their claim that Jesus was the same person as the Father. Now, modalism can be refuted very simply just by looking at the prayer life of Jesus. When Jesus prayed to the Father, He clearly wasn't praying to himself, but he was praying to another person. He was praying to the person of the Father. So we can't solve the dilemma by changing or rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. If we did that, we would be denying the very heart of our faith. The Bible is very clear that there is one God at the heart of the Jews' confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But with the coming of Jesus, we see very clearly the three persons of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all equally God. Three distinct persons united in such a way that their personhood isn't confused and distinct from each other in such a way that the unity of the one true God is not broken. This means that Jesus can both say, I and the Father are one, as we heard um, earlier. Uh, Sorry, we didn't hear that earlier, but we did also hear this morning um, in a reading, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I am going to the Father. So I and the Father are one in that we share divinity. We are both God. We are one 
in the Godhead, yet the Father is in me and I am in the Father and I am going to the Father, uh, distinct persons. This is what John meant at the start of his Gospel when he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Son is both with God the Father, distinct in their persons, and is God, sharing the same divine nature as the Father, and so one in Godhood. And the same may be said of the Spirit. Now people have tried over the centuries to try and represent this using images, illustrations such as the cloverleaf or the three states of water or a family business or an egg. But nothing in creation is adequate for God to be compared to. They will in some way always lead us down the wrong track into a wrong understanding of God. Now theologians in the 13th century developed a diagram. So we see here the one on the left. I think that's, that's actually a, a copy um, of a 13th century book to try and express visually what the scriptures reveal to us about the Trinity. And I think that's as far as we can go in using some kind of picture or image to convey something of the nature of God. But all that might still add to our confusion over this verse. The question remains, if we can't take it figuratively, how can Jesus be everlasting Father when he clearly is not the Father? Well, the answer to this is actually very simple. Isaiah isn't using this term in reference to this child who was to be born, this child's nature as a member of the Godhead. That's something that was only clearly and explicitly revealed in the Gospel. But he's referring to an aspect of his role as the Messiah, the Christ. Just as the king was to be the source of all good wisdom and justice, as conveyed in the title Wonderful Counselor, and he was to be the defender of his people who protected them from their enemies, conveyed in the title Mighty God, so he was also to provide for them and to care for them, just as a good father would do for his children and his household. A king was to be a father to his people. He was to treat them as if they were his own family members, not just servants or citizens. He was to be approachable. He was to be warm towards them. He was to be mindful of their needs. He was to use his own wealth and prosperity to foster prosperity for them. And in doing so, he was imaging the nature of God himself. Through his good and generous rule, the people would get a glimpse of their true Heavenly Father. Now, in the context of Isaiah, we see the word Father used in a similar sense in chapter 22. This chapter was written 
at the time of King Hezekiah, uh, one of the few good kings of Israel. However, Hezekiah had a steward, essentially the kingdom's treasurer, who was using the king's money to feather his own nest. So from verse 15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who was over the household, and say to him, What have you done? What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. It might sound like he's not feathering his nest, but it was a very expensive thing. Only the rich were able to have their own private personal tomb carved into the rock. He was using the kingdom's money to make a name for himself so he'd have a tomb and be remembered forever. Behold, the Lord will hell you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honour to his father's house. See how Eliakim is described as a father to the people in his role of administering the resources of the king to provide for the people what they needed rather than looking after his own interests like his predecessor. This is what is conveyed in this term, the key to the house of David. He had at his disposal all the wealth and the resources of the king. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph rose up from the ranks, through the ranks he started off as a prisoner, as a slave in Egypt to Prime Minister of Egypt. He was essentially in the same kind of role as Shebna and Eliakim and he described himself as a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In the wisdom that God gave Joseph, he administered all of Egypt's resources and he was able to save the people through seven years of drought. Now this is more than figurative language here. These men were not literally flesh and blood parents of the people under their care, but there's an element of true fatherhood in their role. Fatherhood isn't just about biology or genetics or origin, it's about relationship. Jesus said to those who were opposing him, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Their obedience to the devil made them 
his children and him their father. Similarly, Christians, when we are not children of God because we share his nature, but because he has brought us by adoption into a relationship where we now do his will and his desires. But as we know, that doesn't make God's fatherhood just a symbolic idea. Paul wrote to Timothy and addressed him as my true child in the faith. Now Paul wasn't Timothy's flesh and blood father or even his legally adoptive father, but his relationship to him in the faith was one of true fatherhood. That's the sense in which this child to be born as king would be father to the people. Bit of a heads up to us, isn't it? Um, Us men, you don't actually have to be a literal flesh and blood father to still be a father to those around you. Every child that I meet, I'm to be a father to in some way. And women, every child that you meet, even if you're not a flesh and blood mother, you are to display something of true motherhood to those children. Isaiah's prophecy about Eliakim is significant, not just because it helps us understand this meaning of the title Father, but also because of how it's referenced in the New Testament, in a passage that opens up this idea of everlasting Father even more. This is in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So we see from this that Eliakim in the Old Testament was one of the many people who actually foreshadowed Jesus. And Jesus tells the Philadelphian church that he's opened a door for them. We're given more insight into what this statement means when we look at the end of Jesus' message to this church. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Where is this open door that Jesus has opened up for the Philadelphian Christians to walk in that no one can shut? Well, it's the door into the temple, the door into the city, the new Jerusalem. The Philadelphians had faced rejection and exclusion and even attack from the Jewish synagogue in their city. But that didn't matter, since their true home and family is with Jesus in his father's house. They could come through this open door that Jesus has opened through his death and resurrection. No one can shut the door that he has opened into the Father's house where all may come through him to refuge and safety 
So the door is open so that the blessings of the Father might flow out to his people and so that they may come into his house and into his presence. The door is also then shut securely so that no one can open it. In ancient times, when the enemy attacked, all the people living around would flee to the castle, to the palace. They would come into the king's home and the gates would be shut and locked securely to protect them from their enemies. So this mighty God that we saw last week, he goes out and fights for his people, is also the everlasting father who brings his people in and keeps them safe. But when we see this title, Everlasting Father, applied to Jesus, it's much more than him as Messiah King simply being a father to the people. There are three other ways that this title works its way out in Jesus and they're actually are, they are in relation to his, uh, his, who he is as God the Son. If you meet someone who is identified as the Son, there must also by implication be another person who is the Father. Jesus shows us firstly that God is the everlasting Father. In ancient kingdoms, the firstborn son, the heir to the throne, would normally be his father's right-hand man. He would be solely committed to be on about the business of the kingdom on behalf of his father. And that meant if you dealt with the son, it was as if you had dealt with his father, the king himself. And that's the kind of language that Jesus uses here in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to deal with the King? You have to deal with his Son. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And do do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And we saw this opening, welcoming language in that passage when he spoke of coming to take us to be where he is, in his Father's house where there's many rooms. Jesus shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt that the name Father when applied to God, is not merely a figurative term. He's not like a father. He is the father, literally, because he has a son and because his work is to adopt many children into his family. Don't be put off by God being called father because of your own limited or deficient or maybe even negative experience of your own earthly flesh and blood father. God the Father is not like them. We who are fathers are supposed to be like him and we often fall and fail in being the image of our heavenly father. 
Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. So if we want to know what it means to call God Father, we need to look at him and listen to him. In 2020, we'll be going through a series entitled, This is my Son, Listen to Him. The words of the Father on the mountain of transfiguration. We'll we'll be spending 16 weeks looking at the teaching of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. And as we do, we'll not only see who Jesus is as the Son, but we'll also have a full revelation of the Father through him. Secondly, Jesus introduces us to his everlasting Father. He doesn't just speak of the Father so that we may know something about the nature of the triune Godhead, although as we saw earlier, that's very important. He speaks of his Father in order to both reveal him to us and to bring us to him. Just as we saw, to be with Jesus where he is, at the right hand of the Father, in the Father's embrace, receiving full rights and privileges as a son, knowing ourselves to be the objects of the Father's love. Knowing Jesus means not only can we say, I know that God is Father, but also we can cry out from the depths of our hearts to God, Abba, Abba, Father, as we sang earlier, a deep cry of affection and intimacy and respect. Until we know this true fatherhood, not just as a fact but as a living reality, we'll never really truly know anything, least of all ourselves. Thirdly, Jesus leads all of creation in worshipping and honouring the everlasting Father. We saw this in the second reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Then, uh, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. While we talk, and rightfully so, of Jesus as the king, it's important to see that Jesus himself wasn't on about his own kingdom, but the kingdom of his father. He talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, as he told his disciples, Matthew 28. But this is an authority that was given to him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The Father gave that authority to him when he raised him from the dead. So nothing Jesus has is of his own. He's received it all from the Father. And that means that all he does is in order to bring glory and praise and honour to the Father. Jesus' goal, both as the Messiah and as the Son is to lead all creation in worship of the Father who created all things and who gives life to all things. 
And this is especially where this, in this description the everlasting comes in. All other fathers, whether they're true fathers or symbolic fathers, are only temporary. Human fatherhood has a beginning and comes to an end at the death of either the father or the child. The kings and the rulers who exercise something of true fatherhood to their people will come and go and they may or may not be replaced by someone who is just as fatherly as them. But the fatherhood of God is eternal, it's everlasting. He has always been the father. He always will be the father. And so anyone who comes into sonship to him by faith in Jesus is therefore made permanently a child. If his fatherhood is everlasting, then our adoption into his family is also everlasting. When Jesus hands the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be all in all, he's not doing something to change God, as if God was insufficient or not all-powerful until that happens. His action is doing something to the kingdom, to the people. Having reconciled all things through the cross, meaning he's put everything back into its rightful place, just as an accountant lays out all of the figures on the reconciliation statement to show that everything is where it belongs. Jesus will bring about that reconciliation. He then ensures that every creature in heaven and earth gives the glory due to God the Father for his glorious grace. God will be all in all, in that all things and in all things the glory of God the Father will be displayed. So let us come to Jesus. Jesus who not only fathers us in his role as Messiah and Christ, but Jesus who brings us home to our true Father, his Father, our Father, the Everlasting Father. Let's pray. Abba, Father, what a wonderful thing that we can address you in that way. We can call you Mighty God, we can call you Lord and King, we can call you Ruler and Creator, but we can also call you Father because of what your Son has done for us. He shed his blood, he rose again that we might be adopted and be called your children. Two astounding things really, that we might call you Father, but that you might also call us sons and daughters. Thank you for your faithfulness through the centuries that you made a promise so many millennia ago that a child would be born, a son would be given and that through him we might know that you are the everlasting father and for that we give you all our heartfelt and eternal praise. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, God is all loving, he is our father.